can be seated. We are continuing this morning with the series on the book of Ruth that we've called Uncommon. And uh, one of the encouraging lessons of this book is that the context for faithful living is more often than not ordinary life. It is true that we often read of extraordinary things in the scriptures, of great heroes like David slaying Goliath and Gideon and his small army defeating the Midianites and Josiah's great reforms for Israel and even the miraculous healings and exorcisms of Jesus's earthly ministry and then of his apostles after that. And, you know, we can sometimes, I think, leave these stories and feel a bit removed. You know, well, yeah, David killed Goliath, but I got to go change a dirty diaper and uh, get the calendar for the week in order and, and all the ordinary things of our lives. And if we're honest, our lives just seem a bit kind of humdrum, run of the mill. You know, we want an adventure. We want to we want to go to Mordor and fight Sauron, but all we do is go to Stop and Shop and shop for groceries that are on sale. <laughs> and here's the point, is, is the book of Ruth uh, challenges us to see our very ordinary circumstances as the context within which the extraordinary God is at work, often through our actions, bereavement, barley harvest, threshing floor, uneven social dynamics. These are the everyday realities of that world, the ancient world in which this story takes place. And it's into these realities that we see God's faithfulness at work through the actions of his people. The book of Ruth teaches us that in, in God's economy, there are no insignificant people. There are no insignificant places and there are no insignificant moments. But each of these, when lived before and in the presence of God, can be infused with a kind of sacred significance and possibility. Most will not lead to the birth of a savior and the redemption of the world as do these events long ago in the time of the judges. But in a sense, all our actions of fidelity to Jesus in the ordinary lives that we lead are or at least can be infused by the grace of God with meaning and significance that far surpasses what we might see or perceive. The actions of the people of God are in fact regularly used by him to play a part in the redemption of the world for his glory. And they do this in ways that surprise and subvert the cultural norms around us. We see this in Ruth 3, which is our text this morning, and I would invite you to open up to Ruth chapter 3. But in Ruth 3, the patriarchal society just provides the context for the work of God to be displayed and advanced through two very capable, strong women. This book is, is not an endorsement of a culture where a woman could only find protection, worth, and security in the presence of a man. Rather, it is the broken context within which we see God's steadfast love playing out before us in ways that surprise and subvert, subvert the standard features of the culture. See how God works through the initiative and the boldness of two women who were written off in their day, who had little hope. And surely today is no different. Honestly, there are dimensions of our culture that are just as broken and, and bound by sin as there were long ago. And it's true that even in our culture, the, the steadfast love of God subverts our culture when it is played out through the people of God in their ordinary and everyday lives as we reflect his character in the world. Even through people who feel as inconsequential, maybe some of you feel this way this morning, as inconsequential and as hopeless as did Ruth and Naomi long ago. This is our opportunity. Now, today, the circumstances that you're living in, this ordinary 
but broken world in which we are called in the life of faith to an uncommon boldness. Like the uncommon commitment that we saw in chapter 1 and the uncommon favor that we saw in chapter 2, as we turn to chapter 3, we see an uncommon boldness. And this boldness displays the hesed of God. And that word means loyalty or devotion, love, kindness, compassion, seeing the needs of the other and going into action to deliver. We see this on display here. In chapter 3. And our goal in looking at this text is first to see the uncommon boldness, the bold acts in this chapter. And then secondly, we want to understand their rationale, their risk, and their reward. So first, let's see the uncommon acts of boldness here in our text. So Naomi hatches a bold plan. Now, my guess is that if any of you women out here are thinking about proposing to your boyfriend that this is probably not the plan that you have put in place, or maybe your mom has put in place for you. <laughs> this is quite an extraordinary set of circumstances, so we need to take some time to understand what is going on here in this ancient culture. So Naomi, she hatches this bold plan to produce a husband for her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite. And her plan hinges upon the status of Boaz as a relative. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? She says in verse 2. Whatever his obligations are as a relative, they feature in Naomi's thinking in, in her plan. She says, see, he'll be winnowing barley that very night at the threshing floor. Presumably because the night winds are more favorable than the winds of the day for the work of threshing and separating the grain from the husks and the stalks. The threshing floor would be found outside the city gates, likely on a hill, perhaps with a rock as a surface to keep dirt out. And it's here that landowners and their hired hands would gather, it seems as if at evening, to thresh out the wheat and the barley from the harvest that had taken place in the six to eight weeks before. Naomi gives Ruth several instructions. Wash, she says, that is, take a bath. Wash, therefore, verse 3, and anoint yourself, likely with a perfumed olive oil. And then she says, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. The idea of putting on your cloak, some commentators will look at this and say this means bridal attire or the best clothing that she has. In fact, this word is the same word used for the cloak of the poor in Exodus 22. I don't think we need to read that any significance that Ruth is somehow dressing up for a wedding. She's just putting on her clothes. And then she goes to the threshing floor to wait for Boaz to eat and drink. She's to observe the place that he lies down. And then, verse 4, go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. There's a question we need to ask. Is, is Naomi telling Ruth to seduce Boaz? It's kind of an obvious question when you read this strange text. The threshing floor, after all, is associated with licentiousness. Men would be found there alone at night, and therefore it is, it is likely that prostitutes would be found there as well, offering their services. It seems that certainly Naomi is wanting Ruth to be attractive. And further, the three words that Naomi uses in this text often carry sexual overtones. Lie down, uncover. And finally, this question of the feet. Feet can be used and is used at times in the Old Testament as a euphemism for exposing far more than just the feet. 
Clearly, the narrator is building tension here with these words and keeping the audience engaged. But I want to suggest there are, there are really good reasons to resist the idea that Naomi is telling Ruth to be a seductress and to trap this man Boaz in her grasp. First, none of these words require a reading that implies anything overtly propositional. To lie down can mean just that, to lie down. To uncover his feet can mean that she did just that, to expose his feet and maybe his lower legs as well to the colder air that he might stir and be awakened by the chill at night, which is in fact what happens at midnight later in the text. Furthermore, we would suggest that this kind of explicit propositioning, that, that kind of read of this, would likely fall very flat on a man of the kind of character that we know Boaz to have. And it wouldn't seem to fit in the lives of women of the kind of character that we know Naomi and certainly Ruth to have. It so happens that there is a, a better explanation of the washing, anointing, and dressing that's going on here with Ruth that still keeps marriage at the center of the picture but doesn't require a seductive intention. Naomi is telling Ruth to end the time of her mourning as a widow. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, David takes these very same steps of washing, anointing, and clothing himself after the child that was born to Bathsheba dies. And he does this to signal that his time of mourning has come to an end. His pleading before the Lord. And it's very possible that Naomi is having Ruth go through these very similar steps to remove her garments of mourning and to signal to Boaz in this encounter that she is in a new phase of her life and that if possible, marriage is now an option for her. In fact, this could explain even more as Daniel Block notes in his commentary, it may well be that until this time, Ruth had always worn the garments of widowhood, even when she was working out in the field. Perhaps this woman, perhaps this was the reason for Boaz's inertia because there is a question well if Boaz was to act or if another kinsman redeemer was to act why had no one acted at this point well perhaps it's because Ruth was signaling to everyone that she was still in the period of mourning as a widow Block continues as an upright man Boaz would not violate a woman's right to grieve the loss of her husband nor impose himself upon her until she was ready we see Ruth's devo devotion to Naomi in verse 5 as she responds to her mother-in-law's uh, bold and daring plan she says all that you say I will do and then in verse 6 so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her so again even though this isn't about seduction this is still a bold and daring plan that Naomi has put in place and it is the first act of boldness that we see in our text but as we read on we see a second as well from Ruth as she deviates from Naomi's plan look with me starting in verse 7 as the narrator begins to unveil what happens as Ruth executes the plan and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down at midnight the man was startled and turned over and behold a woman lay at his feet he said who are you and she answered I am Ruth your servant spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer so she executes the plan. Let me rule out one thing. Let's rule out drunkenness, which again seems to be a, a potential reading you could make of this text. Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. There's nothing in the original here that implies that Boaz was inebriated. To say what the narrator has said is just to say that this is the picture of a man who's 
doing very well and has just enjoyed a really good meal and food and drink and is content and filled and grateful and at peace. We could say he's the opposite of hangry, which is something we experience in our family from time to time. We can imagine him reflecting gratefully on the fact that the Lord has intervened and the famine has come to an end and there is grain that has been harvested now on the threshing floor. So he's, eat, he's eaten and he's drank and now he is content and he goes down to sleep. This is something that Naomi would know and she would know that, Ruth, this is the best time to approach Boaz with this kind of bold proposal. So Ruth follows the plan. She sees where Boaz is sleeping and she softly approaches, uncovers his feet, we read, and then lies down. The plot thickens at midnight. And Boaz stirs, likely from the cold, from his feet being uncovered. And he wakes up and behold, a woman lay at his feet. We can imagine his surprise. And so he asks, who are you? And this woman laying at his feet answers, I am Ruth your servant. The word for servant here is significant. Ruth uses a different word here in chapter 3 verse 9 than she uses when she responds to Boaz in chapter 2 verse 13. The word she used in chapter 2 meant she was merely a handmaiden with few legal rights and therefore ineligible for marriage. Here, however, she uses a different word for servant that implies that she is a woman who can be part of an Israel, Israelite household and is eligible to be a wife or a concubine. It is an elevation of status that Ruth understands. The garments of widowhood are gone. Ruth is claiming a status that makes her eligible for marriage. She's no longer wearing the garments of the widow. And she has anointed herself with perfumed oil. And here she stands or, or lies at his feet. I am Ruth, your servant. But this is where the next act of boldness, if this isn't bold enough, what Naomi has instructed Ruth to do, Ruth takes it and notches the intensity up a level. Because look with me back at verse 4. What was Ruth supposed to do? Then go and uncover his feet, Naomi says, and lie down. And then, and he will tell you what to do. Is that what she did? No. If we attend to the text, what we find is midnight, he was startled, a woman lay at his feet, and he asked her, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And then she says this, spread your wings over your servant. This is a euphemism in that day and age that meant so clearly, marry me, Boaz. That's what this meant. It was a proposition for marriage. This isn't staying quiet and letting him tell you what to do. This is Ruth boldly stepping into this moment that's quite awkward already and saying, spread your wings over your servant. And wings here would recall the words that Boaz had prayed over Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Perhaps Ruth is using the same words here to to, to, to remind Boaz of his prayer over her and to say, why don't you be an answer to that prayer, O Boaz? Spread your wings over your servant, she says. And then <clears throat> she gives the reason. This is an uncommon boldness, but the basis of her proposal in verse 9, she says, for you are a redeemer. So she's appealing to Boaz to marry her based on Boaz's status as a redeemer, 
Sometimes we call this a kinsman redeemer, a relative of the family who has the right and perhaps even the responsibility, but certainly the right to intervene in the situation of his relatives who have fallen on hard times. And Ruth understands, this foreign woman understands the law of Israel in this context, in this moment, to include the right to marry her. And Boaz does not repudiate Ruth's understanding. In fact, he reinforces it in his response. So here's this foreign woman invoking Israelite law with this term, asking Boaz to step into her life and to marry her through his status as a redeemer. The background here, we think there are these two sets of Old Testament laws that are the background for this idea of being a redeemer. One is in Leviticus 25, and it's related to the redemption of land. It is that a close redeemer has the right to redeem the land of a kinsman who has fallen on hard times so that the land, the inheritance, may stay in the family, in the clan. So that's one background. And that certainly seems, when we look at chapter 4 next week, it seems to come into play. It does come into play here. The second background is leveret marriage, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 25. And and that is in which a, a brother of the deceased would marry his widow, if they had had no children, no offspring, in order to raise up offspring in the name of the brother. Uh, to raise up descendants for the deceased brother. These two aspects of Israel law are actually not ever brought together in the Old Testament, except it seems here in the book of Ruth through this narrative. And it's probably likely that this reflects the local custom and practice, the application of these laws in some ways in Bethlehem in the time of the judges. Boaz, again, doesn't, he doesn't repudiate Ruth's understanding of this idea of the Redeemer, both related to land and related to the marriage of Ruth. He seems to reinforce it. But the bottom line is, is Ruth boldly raises the stakes by invoking this context of the Redeemer to Boaz, invoking his legal status. So these are the two acts of uncommon boldness in this strange, at least to our ears, this strange story of a marriage proposal. Let's then turn in the the, the last half of this message to think about their rationale, their risk, and their reward. Their rationale. We might wonder, you know, what kind of boldness does the Lord bless? We know the kind of boldness that the world blesses, the kind of take matters into your own hands and get your your name and your product and your stuff out there and just be, you know, be a a self-made man or woman. There's no doubt that Ruth and Naomi are engaged in taking the bull by the horns, so to speak, in this daring proposal, and they're forging a new future, but the rationale of their boldness is critical and important. They're seeking the well-being of another. Consider Naomi. Let's go back to verse 1 for a moment. This is where we see her heart behind this scheme. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. What Naomi seeks is permanence, peace, and provision for Ruth that only a husband could provide in that ancient culture. And the word that she uses here for rest is a synonym of the word she uses in verse 9 of chapter 1 where Naomi expresses her wishes for her daughter-in-law. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. What Naomi prayed back in chapter 1 for both Ruth and Orpah She now initiates to provide for Ruth. This is bold and sacrificial love. In fact, if this plan is successful, it will take away from Naomi the one source of help and comfort that she has 
in an otherwise very dark world, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to be given over to a husband. Naomi puts this on the line because she knows that she's older than Ruth, that she will pass away, that Ruth will be left exposed and vulnerable, and she longs for Ruth to have the kind of security and peace and provision that she wants for her, and so she's willing to part with her. This is hesed, that word that depicts loyalty and devotion and kindness, that word that depicts a putting of oneself last and second for the sake of the other. And so Naomi's boldness, this plan that she has devised, is for the sake of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and her benefit. Consider Ruth as she boldly changes the plan, doesn't listen for Boaz to tell her what to do, but instead tells him what to do and calls him her redeemer. What's she doing in this moment? Naomi wants her to have a husband. Naomi is looking out for Ruth's interests. Ruth in this moment, by invoking the concept of the redeemer, is actually looking out for Naomi's interests. She's saying, look, it's not enough for me just to go have a husband. I want to bring blessing to you. I, I pledged myself to you. I committed to you back in chapter 1. And I've stuck close to you. I've clung to you as she did in verse 14 of chapter 1. And as she invokes this idea of the Redeemer and all that comes with it, she's saying, I'm not doing this for myself, Naomi. I'm not in this just for me. I'm in this for you. I want you to be blessed, you to be encouraged. I'm in this for you, Naomi, and for Malan, my deceased husband, and for Elimelech, your deceased husband. Invoking the legal status of Boaz in this case implies that she is doing this for her family, not for her own needs, but for the needs of her family, for loyalty to her people and her clan, not just for herself. Ruth is being sacrificial and self-serving in a way that it doesn't seem that Naomi intended. She doesn't cite the Redeemer in verse 2. She just calls Boaz a relative who she knows has been kind to them. But Ruth, as she seems prone to do, is so committed to going further and farther putting aside her own interests to seek the best possible outcome for her mother-in-law. When Boaz responds, he, he actually gets this. He sees that this is exactly what Ruth is doing when he talks about your last kindness, or hesed, is greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Ruth's first kindness was her devotion to her mother-in-law by leaving father and mother and, and all familiarity behind in Moab and coming with her mother to a foreign land as a foreigner. Boaz knows this, but he says, look, this second act of devotion, this proposal that you've made to me by invoking my status as a redeemer, this is even greater than the first. He seems to imply that Ruth was free to entertain marriage as she had taken off the garments of her widowhood from much more eligible bachelors in Israel. The young, he says, whether poor Likely there, then Ruth would be marrying for, for love or rich. Ruth could be marrying for convenience or for, for means. But he says, you've done neither of these things. You put the needs of your family first. You've come to seek out a redeemer, an older man, for the sake of Naomi and for the sake of the lineage of this family. It would be implied as Ruth invoked the, the status of Boaz as a redeemer that any offspring or progeny from this marriage, the firstborn at least, would be given over to Naomi and be raised up as an heir, not to Boaz, but to Elimelech. This was an incredible act of kindness by Ruth offered up to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So their rationale 
for their boldness is the sake of the other. What of the risk? We've mentioned the risk to Naomi is that she loses the one thing that has meant so much to her in her life. Yet she, she offers up Ruth so that Ruth might have the best possible outcome in her life. And Ruth, what about Ruth? What about the risks for Ruth? I mean, she's, she's a foreigner. She's poor. She's a widow. She's out late at night. She goes to the threshing floor, a place of licentiousness. There's great risk here. She doesn't know how Boaz will respond. It's possible that he could take advantage of her. It's possible that he could just scorn her and shame her for putting at risk his own reputation and character as well as hers by being seen there with him at night. He could give her a lecture again and teach her a lesson and send her home humiliated. And when she goes off script and invokes his status as the redeemer, a redeemer, then he could resent her forwardness. It's not yours to bring up to me, Ruth. This is my move to make. She takes great risks. She puts everything on the line as she goes out to seek the best for Naomi. To live a life of uncommon boldness in acts of hesed, of kindness, requires great risk. It requires putting things on the line, things that are valuable to us and central to us and trusting the character of the God who sees us and rules over us. In fact, both Naomi and Ruth seem to be inclined to this kind of boldness because they know the character of the man with whom they are dealing. They're willing to go this far because his character has already been made known. And so Naomi's confidence in verse 4 is he will tell you what to do is rooted in that sense of knowing his character. Our boldness, we might say, is enabled by the character of the one whose favor we seek the unchanging God of the universe. His character enables us to put everything on the line in acts of hesed, of kindness, to those around us in the everyday. What a reward. I haven't dealt much with Boaz. We'll deal with Boaz a bit more next week. But Boaz, I mean, you imagine the tense moment. Ruth makes this bold and daring, audacious proposal for marriage. What's he going to say? Verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord. And there's those words that we saw last week so powerfully in the field, my daughter. And then again in verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That word for worthy is the exact same word used to introduce Boaz to us in chapter 2, verse 1. It's the same word used in Proverbs 31, verse 10, when it, which says, An excellent wife, who can find? A worthy woman. You are a worthy woman. This proposal crosses the stratosphere in terms of status. A poor, foreign, widowed, barren woman. Propositions, proposes to a wealthy Israelite man who is in some ways her boss as she's been gleaning in his fields. And Boaz's response, this response of tremendous favor again is my daughter. And then he calls her a worthy woman. He says, everybody in town knows that you are a worthy woman. He's saying, you know, your status may be here and mine may be here. But by using this word, he's drawing her up to his own status. You're a woman worthy because of your commitment your faithfulness and your hesed. 
And then he says to her, you notice Naomi says to Ruth, he will tell you what to do. But what happens? Boaz says to Ruth, I will do for you all that you ask. It's a complete reversal. Do you see it? A complete reversal. What favor has been given to this woman who was to sit at this man's feet and to let him tell her what to do. And now suddenly the greater, at least in terms of social status, has become the servant of the lesser and saying, I will do all that you ask. There is, of course, though, a complication that keeps the narrative going until chapter four. There is, it so happens, a redeemer closer to Ruth and Naomi than Boaz. And Boaz is so righteous that he will not interfere with the legal rights of this closer kinsman redeemer. Instead, he says, in the first thing in the morning, he will settle the matter in verse 13. And so Ruth remains that night, leaves early in the morning, but doesn't leave empty-handed again. Rather, the signs of blessing, the rewards of the boldness, are six measures of barley being poured out and carried in her garment back to Naomi. Some think maybe this was a, a, a giving her an alibi for being out at such, late, at such late an hour that maybe people would just assume that she was out gleaning into the night to provide for her mother-in-law. But she walks back to Naomi. Can you imagine what Naomi is thinking and wondering? Just like we saw last week, she's waiting. This chapter three is framed in the same way with these interactions with Naomi. And she says to Ruth, who are you? My daughter. At least that's the literal rendering of what she says in verse 16. How did you fare, my daughter? The who there is really, who are you in status? Who are you in significance? Are you Boaz's wife? Who are you, Ruth, my daughter? And Ruth cannot say at this point because of the complication. She's, aw she's awaiting the results of what will happen the next morning at the city gate, as we'll see next week. But Ruth can communicate tremendous reward and blessing for the daring action she will be married she will have a husband we don't know yet if it's Boaz or the closer redeemer but she knows that this will be taken care of and that is tremendously of course we as readers want it to be Boaz we're not satisfied yet so we have to read to chapter four but but Ruth can come home and say I will have a husband and more than that you Naomi will be taken care of Boaz said you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law and he gives her the barley for the sake of Naomi. Tremendous reward that results in these actions. The rationale of the uncommon boldness is for the sake of the other. It's chesed, it's this kindness. The risk is putting a lot on the line. The most valuable things, our lives, our reputations, the reward, God blesses such sacrificial, others motivated, risky living in the everyday. This is the kind of boldness that our God blesses Consider when Moses walked up to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. That was a daring and bold act, but he wasn't doing it for his own benefit. He was doing it for the sake of God's people who were in bondage and enslaved. When David stood among the frightened army of the people of God, standing before the Philistines, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Was David trying to make a name for himself or to glorify his own name? Rather, no, he was trying to deliver the people of God. This was for their sakes and for God's sake, for his glory, because God was being mocked by Goliath. When Esther, in an act of uncommon boldness, says this, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Was she looking to make a name for herself or was she uh, having the interests of the people of God in mind? The Jewish people have been threatened because of the wicked scheming of Haman. Or consider the four friends who in an act of uncommon boldness 
dig a hole in the roof where Jesus is teaching and drop their paralyzed friend down through the roof? Were they acting in their own interests? Is that the kind of boldness that God wants you to live in? No, they were acting for the sake of their paralyzed friend. Or consider another foreign woman that we read about already in Matthew chapter 15, the Canaanite woman who comes before Jesus because her daughter has been possessed by a demon and is not well. And she pleads with Jesus to have mercy on her daughter. And Jesus rebuffs her appeal. In a, that's another sermon, but he rebuffs her appeal. He tests her faith. And how does she respond? Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs from under the master's table. And he says, go, your daughter will be healed. And she was healed instantly. I have not seen such great faith. That's the uncommon boldness of the people of God. It is to go on behalf of those in need and petition before the king himself for their sakes. It is to put everything on the line that there might be blessing brought not to ourselves because we have already been blessed, but blessing brought to Naomi or to Ruth or to those in need. This is the kind of boldness that God blesses deeply. And we, as the people of God, are called to live this way. But we cannot... And I'll close with this. Unless we see, and this is the first insight of faith that leads to uncommon boldness, unless we see first the greatest act of uncommon boldness ever to be lived and acted. An act that is marked by this rationale for the sake of the other. An act that entails great risk, in fact, certain risk, the loss of life. And an act that brings about tremendous and great reward. The reward even, yes, of a marriage. It is the advent, the coming, the arrival of the one named Jesus. Like Ruth, Jesus was washed, anointed, and clothed. He was washed in the, rivers of, in the, in the waters of Jordan. He was anointed by the woman the night before he was crucified. Remember the alabaster jar of perfume being broken and wiped over his feet. And he was clothed in a purple robe and with a crown of thorns. And he goes mocked as king. He goes in an act of incredible boldness. But his boldness is declared not in words and great speech or in bold and daring propositions as we see here in Ruth chapter 3, but his boldness is actually declared in his restraint, in his silence. He does not call down the legions to his rescue. But like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so too he is silent and goes to the cross on our behalf. The rationale was love, great love. The risk, the certain risk, was the loss of his life. And the reward, well, that's you and me. You and me. His bride. To be won over, washed, cleansed, forgiven, renewed, empowered, made new, filled with his life through the Spirit of God, and now able to live a life of uncommon boldness in an ordinary and everyday world. It's all enabled by the God of heaven and earth, even in Ruth, and certainly in our own lives. This is what we are called to, brothers and sisters.
There are no insignificant people. There are no insignificant places. There are no insignificant moments. In every space and place, every nook and cranny of your life, there is an opportunity to act with hesed, with deep and abiding love and compassion and loyalty and kindness to those that God has placed around you. And as you do so, the glory of the Lord will be made known. You know, we were in this room about 10 days ago with a bunch of churches around the city. We were praying. It was a prayer gathering for churches across the city. And we sang an old classic 90s vineyard song that some of you might know, but it says, let your glory fill this room. Let it go forth from here to the nation. And both Mandy and I were here and we both had that sense as we prayed that song with people from all different ethnic backgrounds, all different denominations gathered in this space. We felt like that was a prayer for Park Street Church. Let your glory fill this room. Let it go forth from here to the nations. You know, how does that glory, the glory of the living God go forth from here to the nations? As you and I, as the scattered people of God go out into the city of Boston and like Ruth and like Naomi, we put it all on the line. Because Jesus has put it all on the line for us. And we live lives of radical love in this city and around the world. God will be glorified as we walk forward by faith with an uncommon boldness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the boldness of your son. And though it happened temporally after the boldness of Naomi and Ruth, we know that their boldness was just an imitation of his. How we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we too might walk with an uncommon boldness in the everyday and ordinary situations of our lives. God, help us to take risks that we might be found ready doing our master's business when you return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.